Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. Hello, folks. My name is Maurice Selby. My name is Reed. And my name is Anastasia. And you're listening to the one and only Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York and the Health in Harlem podcast, which is featured on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, you name it. We're pretty much out there. Podbean. Um, and ladies and gentlemen, we are excited to bring you another great program. Tonight is just going to be the battle of the nerds. Uh, that's essentially what it is, ladies and gentlemen. We will be discussing the Great Barrington, the Great Barrington Declaration, and the Jon Snow Memorandum. And uh, that's the topic of tonight. And I know probably some eyebrows raised out there, like, "What are you guys talking about?" Uh, but yeah, this is a a document that was published um, October fourth of this year, ladies and gentlemen. Three scientists got together and uh, out of concern for the economic crisis that has resulted from this pandemic, um, they crafted this document, this statement, the Great Barrington Declaration. And uh, three, these three docs, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, Dr. Sunetra Gupta, and Dr. Martin Koldorf authored the declaration along with the help of uh, an assistant of a family member and a journalist. And um, just to get into the background a little bit, Dr. Kaldorf, he is a PhD. He's a professor of medicine at Harvard Medical School in Brigham and Women's Hospital. And he's also an epidemiologist whose work centers around developing statistical and epidemiologic methods for disease surveillance, mainly when it comes to increased incidence of various cancers. And Dr. Kaldorf's work uh, helps determine whether these outbreaks are by chance or not, meaning, right, something else such as an environmental factor, contributed to that uptick of illness. Dr. Jay Bhattacharya, he's a professor of medicine at Stanford University and a research associate at the National Bureau of Economics Research. And Dr. Bhattacharya's research largely focuses on health and well-being of uh, vulnerable populations. And most recently, he's been working a lot on the epidemiology of COVID-19 and government policies and also the public health responses to this pandemic. And uh, Dr. Bhattacharya holds an MD and a PhD in economics. And then finally, we have Dr. Sanutra Gupta. She is a professor of theoretical epidemiology at Oxford University and studies the evolution of diversity in pathogens, right? And so these are the authors of this declaration. 
And essentially what it says is, hey, you know, cut all the nonsense, man, all this lockdown stuff, um, all of these restrictions that have been uh, put upon us all throughout the world in response to this pandemic. It is just immensely harmful. Um, looking at the economic fallout, the millions of uh, jobless jobless claims that we've seen um, recently, the children being out of school, not receiving an education, right? The long-term costs and burden associated with that. Um, and then finally, the mental health fallout with uh, a rise in the levels of depression and anxiety disorders um, all around us, and even an uptick in substance and alcohol abuse. Um, all of that, right? Um, it, it needs to stop. These lockdowns need to stop because of all of these negative effects of the lockdown. Um, and essentially what they want to, to do or what they propose is uh, to let this thing run rampant so that we can reach herd immunity and in that way decrease the transmission rates and therefore the whole risk of uh, this illness. And then we have uh, October 15th. There was a response to that that came out. And this is the Jon Snow Memorandum, which says um, pretty much everything cited in, uh, well, not everything, but that uh, the Great Barrington Declaration is hogwash. We need to stick to what we've been doing as far as uh, restrictions to limit the spread of COVID-19 and therefore limit the uh, burden when we talk about morbidity and mortality associated with this illness. Um, and that this is why th this stuff is essential um, in light of the economic negatives that we all know of, right? And that this is about saving lives and, and we really need to um, continue with the plans that we've set forth um, in these restrictions, but also when needed, lockdowns and, and so forth. And of course, with that, right, establishing um, great testing infrastructure and also treat and trace programs uh, so that we can stop the spread of this illness. And that's what it boils down to. Now, who's right? We're going to get into that because this is a big quote unquote debate, but I think hopefully we'll, we'll settle that um, as we talk about it. So how did you guys feel? I don't know. Um, I remember when we kind of broached the topic on this, everybody's like, wait, what is this? Because it just came, seemed to come out of the blue. Yeah. When you first mentioned the documents, I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so I didn't even realize that this was such a big thing in the scientific community that was going on. But it was very interesting to read the declaration, the Great Barrington Declaration, um, especially because I have like a little bit of a background in uh, news writing and stuff like that. Seeing the language that they use kind of made me be like, hmm, okay, what are you guys going on about? Um, so it was interesting because they were like, oh, all of this is just going to put a very big strain on the working class and on the young people and that we should allow them to have like achieve herd immunity while saving, like not going after the vulnerable population, but they don't come up with a plan or anything like that. They just say like, Everything we're doing should not be going on anymore, and we should just stick with herd immunity. And I don't know. There have been countries that tried that before or attempted that approach, and it didn't go so well. For example, one of them being uh, England. I know that back in March, they mm -hmm. were talking about going. the prime minister at the time. What was his name? Boris. I think Boris was like, yeah, we're going to go Boris after the herd, yeah. Yeah, the herd immunity um, approach. 
And that didn't go so well because clearly they're not following that anymore. So it's interesting to see that three scientists that are, you know, they have all of these great credentials and, you know, they're really smart. Like they come from Harvard, Oxford and Stanford, you know, the really big name schools to come up with something like this without having any sort of um, call of call to action or plan regarding the claims that they're making. Yeah, well, I mean, the mm-hmm. the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, they do provide some sort of plan. Um, they call it focus protection. So you guys listening mm-hmm. out there, you can't see, but I am doing little air quotes with my fingers when I'm saying focus protection. Um, but essentially, they want to try and protect the people with pre-existing conditions, those most vulnerable populations. And then everyone else, they want to end uh, stay-at-home orders and mandatory restrictions on activities and such. Uh, for those who are de- who are deemed lower risk populations, um, so for me, I when I was reading into this, I was like, okay, I mean, th- these are things that we've heard before at, in arguments against what our federal government was doing. Like, hey, look at Sweden; they never shut down, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think the most telling thing for me was following the funding. So the Great Barrington Declaration was funded by the American Institute for Economic Research which is a libertarian think tank, um, which is part of the Koch-funded network of organizations and those organizations being associated with climate change denial and other things. But it was really telling to me that it's a libertarian think tank and the authors of this want to end all stay-at-home orders and other mandatory restrictions. Again, following the libertarian idea of like the, go- the federal government is as hands-off as possible. People are free mm-hmm. to do whatever they want. And, you know, one thing uh, that I just want to put out there, right? I don't think, and this is just me uh, believing in the goodness of mankind, um, and especially when we talk about the medical and scientific community. I mean, do we have bad actors out there, you know, people with ulterior motives and that say and do things um, with a specific purpose in mind, right? When science is, no, we look at the evidence, right? And then we sort of um, uh, interpret that data and use that evidence to inform policy. What I want to say is that I think this came from a good place, right? I think they were definitely being aware of what we've experienced as far as the economic fallout, right? Eight months into this pandemic, you know, we're still finding for ideal ways to combat this virus and keep the public safe. And we know that lockdowns, just like any intervention, whether we're talking about specific medical or medicine that we're giving to an individual or large public health measures, we know that those things have benefits and they had adverse effects, right? The adverse effects with what we've seen up to this point um, from the lockdowns and the restrictions that are in place to limit the spread of COVID-19, yes, they have a serious economic fallout. And we saw, you know, just the other week, um, as of October 15th, about an additional 886,000 Americans filing for unemployment assistance. We saw major layoffs from companies such as Disney and United Airlines, thousands of businesses, you know, small, medium and large that are, um, if not suffering these layoffs, we're talking about uh, severe, right, disabling of these businesses and even permanent closures, right? We're talking about a lot of huge um, negative effects. The Kaiser Family Foundation tracking poll conducted in mid-July found that 53% of adults in the United States reported that their mental health 
had been negatively impacted due to worry and stress over the coronavirus and the negative uh, economic impacts of the lockdowns and the virus itself. And this was significantly increased from results in March, in which that number was about 32%, right? And I would imagine that right now, as we speak, that number might even be higher um, just with everything that's going on. So we know the negative effects of the lockdowns. And that is something that I think they um, were definitely cognizant of, as they clearly expressed in their declaration. But at the same time, when we talk about the what was laid out, and I'm glad that you guys mentioned it, right? That although they have sort of this focus protection ideal in which we find ways and, and utilize these resources that we've used for the lockdown, um, everything for the relief efforts put forth by our own federal government here in the United States and really across the world, we've seen governments do this. Um, they've been saying that, hey, we can take those resources, or at least through this declaration, um, state that we can take these resources and put it to Toward, toward protecting these vulnerable populations, but unfortunately, they don't lay out how. And that's what really gets me with this document is that, you know, you have these three um, highly reputable scientists, these researchers that put out this declaration um, with an awesome name, actually, because it sounds very regal <laughs> and authoritative. <laughs> but unfortunately, it just lacks certain substance that I would expect from, um, you know, scientists of this pedigree. And when I say um, when I say that, what I mean is, you know, looking at some of the data, they do cite, hey, you know, the majority of deaths that we've seen, 80 percent being in individuals over 65 years of age and older and, and individuals with comorbid illnesses. Right. Those vulnerable groups. Um, with, but what they don't cite is the 20 percent that are under 65, you know, the more than 30 percent that are walking around um, with undiagnosed comorbid illnesses. So these are people that are perceived to be healthy, right? But we don't know. Maybe they have some underlying hypertension or maybe there's some underlying uh, heart disease or other um, abnormalities, abnormalities, metabolic derangements, pre-diabetes conditions, you know, um, that make them a little bit higher risk. And we're talking about unleashing this virus on the entire population or these su supposedly, um, you know, uh, less vulnerable populations. Um, but unfortunately, you know, we don't, and I can tell you firsthand from experience and also through the literature, you know, there's a significant number of young, quote unquote, healthy people that suffer bad outcomes when it comes to COVID-19 infection. You know, we're talking everything from the severe acute respiratory syndrome that leads individuals to being placed on ventilators uh, to individuals that are having um, you know, what's termed long COVID, these prolonged symptoms in which they can't even function as they ultimately did prior to uh, infection. And unfortunately, that's just something that is not mentioned. And then finally, when it comes to that, um, you know, focus protection, there's really no plan that's outlined. And it's just very loosey-goosey stuff, unfortunately, that I really can't, you know, as a, as a medical professional, as a person that has been on the front lines, I'm talking on the front lines, taking care of COVID patients. Um, I really just can't get on board with that right now. I mean, now. they mentioned something about the focus protection from the actual declaration they talk about. They gave one example where it's like for nursing homes. So they were just saying that 
um, staff should have acquired the immunity and perform mm -hmm. frequent testing and the rotation should be minimized and they should have all their essentials delivered to their home and meet people outside. Um, and then they mentioned a comprehensive and detailed list of measures, including approaches to multi-generational households can be implemented, but they don't actually mention those. They only mentioned very briefly about nursing homes, which is, again, you know, like if you think that nursing homes are the only place where a vulnerable population um, exists, that is very much removing a lot of variables that are the reality of society today. So I'm not quite sure how they came up with this solution that they're proposing because like did you take everything into account that's one of the questions that i have for them specifically like if i could actually talk to the people that wrote this i would ask them did you take every single factor of society into account when you were coming up with this declaration did you think about people that cannot afford to take time to get their testing people that live in situations where even if they do get sick there's no way of them prevent of being alone so that they don't get anyone else sick is there a way that you can track how long the immunity will last because that is also something that we're not quite sure about like do we have immunity to covid because there have been some cases of reinfection so how are you going to implement and get to the point where we do have enough of a herd immunity that we can move past this if all of these questions are remained unanswered. And, uh, you know, when it comes to that, that's another thing. And I'm glad that you brought that up, um, Anastasia, and that this is, you know, another thing that really just has not been, you know, when we talk about um, these researchers and sort of all of the decisions that have been made, especially at the large levels of public health, you know, they, they have been informed by the data. Um, and the knowledge that we have thus far. And one thing that you you crucially pointed out is we really don't know about uh, immunity when uh, it comes to this virus, right? And so unfortunately, like I have antibodies, but you know, the data is not conclusive to say that my antibodies will prevent me from, you know, being reinfected with this virus. Um, I mean, there's nothing that even strongly says that a second infection will be less severe because there have been cases that have been documented as being more severe with a second infection uh, with this vi virus in individuals that were, you know, thought to have been um, possibly immune to it. And so we, you know, there's too many variables that I think we just don't know to really put this plan into action, um, including, right, just reaching herd immunity itself. And, it, and just really quick, I know you've probably heard this before, ladies and gentlemen, we'll just put it um, into perspective again, exactly what herd immunity is. And herd immunity is essentially, it's not immunity for everyone, right? With enough individuals, um, one, infected with this virus and also immune from this virus from that infection, right? There's a threshold, there's a certain number, a certain percentage of the population that once we hit that number of infected and right immune, because that is a crucial part of this concept, right? These are individuals that were infected and that are now immune. There is a threshold, a percentage that when the population gets to that percentage, it is theorized that the transmission of this virus will then begin to fall, right? And the higher that, um, the higher we are above that threshold, the lower the 
spread of this virus, right? We begin to see a reduction in the spread of this virus. And therefore, we are all protected through this quote unquote herd immunity. The herd as a whole is protected once we've reached that threshold because the virus, right, runs out of susceptible individuals that it can spread to um, or, or infect. And, you know, there are models, right? There are ways in which this is sort of determined. Um, actually, there's a, a formula one minus one over R. And if we remember in past shows, we've talked about that R number, that reproductive number. Um, this is essentially a formula, right? Now, one thing, the R is not always firmly established. That R number is dependent on other variables. Um, and some of those variables are affected by our behavior, right? Um, in any particular population throughout the world. So that's one. We're talking about a variable that is not a constant variable. Uh, but two, no one really knows what this number will boil down to. And there are different estimates, um, you know, some of them as low as 43%, um, which sounds like a reasonable number, right? We got to get less than half the per- percent. And this is a, a number that was uh, cited for Europe. Um, I am not an infectious disease specialist or an epidemiologist, so I'm not going to do that calculation uh, on this program. But, you know, there are varying numbers that have been thrown out, some as low as 43%. Some higher. Um, I've I've heard uh, some numbers cited as being sixty or even seventy percent of the population. But again, right, this goes back to the uncertainty around this. No one really knows what that percentage um, might actually be um, to reach herd immunity. And again, that whole concept of herd immunity hinges on the immunity of an individual after a COVID nineteen infection. And again, we just don't have that firmly established yet, um, which unfortunately makes this point um, and this declaration kind of moot. And so let's move on.com to the snow, the John Snow Memorandum. I had, that was my best uh, English <laughs> voice impersonation, but uh, so yeah, you guys know who John Snow is? My sister's really yelling at me right now. Sorry. She's like loudly whispering Game of Thrones. <laughs> Not Game of Thrones, but I would say equally heroic. Jon Snow essentially was a British physician. He was actually at one point the, oh boy, which queen was it? You know, we can actually call him Sir Sir Jon Snow because he provided anesthesia during uh, one of the queens during that time, uh, during the birth of her child. But anyway, Jon Snow is the heroic physician that essentially uh, squashed the 1854 cholera outbreak in London. He called for government officials, the leadership um, in London at that time to remove the uh, pump handle from the water pump on the Broad Street, uh, where, you know, that was essentially the focus of this outbreak. He actually used, you know, scientific um, means and a lot of the methods that are used in epidemiology today um, when it comes to researching um, outbreaks and looking at disease clusters, you know, essentially he's the father of epidemiology and that's who this memorandum is named after. So uh, as I said, yeah, not as muscular and handsome maybe, um, (laughs) but uh, he is definitely a hero. This memorandum actually calls for the complete opposite, or at least what we've been doing up to this point. Um, in terms of dealing with this uh, pandemic. And it's a, another group of scientists that got together and, you know, at the, uh, as in response to this article, this is their rebuttal saying that, no, you know, uh, we will not 
advocate the plans put forth by the Great Barrington Declaration. And they really call for everything that we've done up to this point um, when it comes to uh, social distancing, mask wearing mandates, um, and then also when we talk about even lockdowns in the most extreme sense, um, and all with the goal of, of saving as many lives as possible. And so that's, you know, this is sort of the complete rebuttal. And essentially, you know, when I look at both of these and contrast them, unfortunately, and I, and I have to look at the uh, authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, because I can't say that these people were on the front lines um, in any sense. And the reason why I bring that up is because looking at the Jon Snow Memorandum and their interest in the human suffering that would be involved or that we would see with rampant spread of this disease, that is something that they definitely make note of. One thing that they also make note of uh, is the economic suffering. But when they weigh the risks of both, right, the widespread uh, sort of spread of this illness um, and the morbidity or mortality that we would see versus the economic fallout of certain restrictions um, and also lockdowns as needed, you know, they deemed the benefits of that approach outweighing the adverse effects when it comes to the economic effects. And they even made the statement that, you know, essentially we will never get back to uh, economic normalcy without controlling the spread of this disease, you know, um, especially when we don't know how long it's going to take to uh, reach that herd immunity. One thing that uh, I really just wanted to get out there was that, you know, unfortunately, Dr. Bhattacharya and, and his colleagues, I can't say that they were out there treating patients um, in emergency rooms, in ICUs. Um, I actually looked through their profiles and just to see if they, you know, these people are still active clinically. You know, two of the researchers um, are actually more bench researchers, uh, it seems like. And so I can't say that they've been face to face with a COVID patient. I can't say that they've seen people, you know, being discharged with, you know, tracheostomies in place because they were on a ventilator for such a prolonged time. They just haven't seen that fallout. And when you've seen that, when you've been there taking care of individuals, and I'm talking young to old, you know, having family members calling about their loved ones because they can't be in the hospital with them uh, during their last moments. I think that gives you a different different perspective, you know, when you when you look at this. Again, this is why, to me, this is just unacceptable human su suffering by letting this um, whole thing run rampant. And also, these are the individuals, right? They're, right, they're calling for everybody to be out there sort of uh, just spreading this in the hopes of reaching herd immunity. But I would challenge them to be the first to go into a COVID ward and take off their mask in here. Because they're like, if you're going to contribute to this, right, you need to be a contributor. If you're going to talk about herd immunity and put it out there like that for this to just run rampant among uh, less vulnerable people, well, then you need to do your part, right? And get out there and start uh, going to basketball games and stuff and karaokeing and whatever else. Um, but these are individuals that are probably working from home. And if you scroll down on that uh, Great Barrington Declaration page, you'll see them outside that uh, beautiful mansion. And uh, yeah, they're they're just not the people that are out there like that. Yeah, in the uh, Great Barrington Declaration, actually, they do mention 
Um, the working class and younger members of society will carry the heaviest burdens in regard to uh, the economy, lower childhood vaccination rates, worsening cardi- cardiovascular disease outcomes and stuff as results of lockdowns. But when you let the disease run rampant, something you have to think about, who's out there working? Who is out there being exposed to COVID? The working class. So they do say that lockdowns have led for suffering of the working class. But in my own view, letting it run rampant, the working class is going to be much more disproportionately affected. There already have been studies that show that people of the working class and minorities also are the ones that are being hit hit the most with COVID already. And there are already New York Times articles showing how people that have been infected with COVID, they have survived and either A, they had massive hospital bills, or B, they just have such uh, long-lasting symptoms that they can't go back to work, that they have to take breaks from work regardless. So for them to say that you have worsening cardiovascular disease outcomes, fewer cancer screenings, and deteriorating mental health, while they may be true, right? Because we don't know at the moment like how lockdown has actually affected these things that they claim. What we have already seen is COVID causing all of these things as well. Mm-hmm. From cardiovascular problems to neurological problems. I remember there was once I was reading an article how there were more blood clots in people that got COVID. And yes. so hearing of all of these post-COVID problems we're already going to have a lot of people that will have some form of disability in the future. And letting the virus run rampant does bring up a lot of ethical concerns on my, like from my point of view, because even like if we let it go rampant and let's say a lot of people get it, we don't know what will happen after they are, you know, quote unquote cured from COVID. Mm -hmm. We don't know what will happen. We don't have the literature. We don't have the data. We're learning about COVID as we are going through this. Yeah, another economic cost to to think about is if the Supreme Court is to strike down Obamacare in the near future, having had COVID will be considered a pre-existing condition, which may not be protected under any new plan that's proposed. So uh, that is something to keep in mind when weighing the economic risks and benefits of unimpeded spread is it's going to be a lot harder for anybody who's had COVID to find healthcare if this is, if this is going to happen. Yes. It's also going uh, to be a lot harder for people to work. If you have brain fog, as people said, or if you lose your vision, because I remember seeing someone on TV saying that their vision decreased, like got worse because of COVID, and they're still having bad vision seven months, like five months after, that's going to impact their productivity. Your economy is going to go down anyways because of the way that we're structured is that we have to be productive members of society. But if we have all of these things that happen to us afterwards as a resulting consequence of having COVID, then in the end of the day, productivity is going to decrease regardless. And we have more people to take care of. So what will happen to our healthcare system as more people show up with these problems after they get infected with COVID? And so... The John Snow memorandum, another thing that it really mentions, I guess, in their kind of closing argument, right, is that, um, and this is, quote, continuing restrictions will probably be required in the short term to reduce transmission and fix ineffective pandemic response systems in order to prevent future lockdowns. 
The purpose of these restrictions is to effectively suppress SARS-CoV-2 infections to low levels that allow rapid detection of localized outbreaks and rapid response through efficient and comprehensive fine test, trace, isolate, and support systems so life can return to near normal without the need for generalized restrictions, right? This is sort of a means to an end. And and that's one thing that we really you just need to sort of take home when we look at this, because I can, I can agree, man. I, I think uh, it is tempting to just sort of take down our guard, right? Um, and just sort of go back to quote unquote normal. Uh, but we, in all reality, if you really think about it, you're sitting in a movie theater and somebody sneezes or sniffles next to you or coughs, I'm not enjoying that movie no more, right? Because I'm sitting in there in this enclosed environment for probably two hours just thinking like, yo, I'm going to catch COVID, right? Um, And I probably won't be the only one thinking that. Um, We just can't live life with with peace of mind with this thing just running rampant um, and people losing their lives and livelihoods um, both at the same time. And uh, Reed, I think you were mentioning the sort of impact on healthcare itself. Yeah, absolutely. Um, healthcare in this country, our healthcare system is not designed for everybody to be sick at the same time and ma- and be able to manage that. You guys saw early on in the in the pandemic that our healthcare systems reached capacity pretty quickly when there's unimpeded spread of a of a virus of this caliber. So, I mean, something to mention is even if you let it spread unimpeded, like the Great Barrington Declaration wants to, even if you let it spread only among younger, healthier people, those healthcare systems are going to reach and stay at capacity for quite some time. Um, and those that need medical attention for reasons unrelated to COVID will not be able to get the attention that they need. Yes. And we've seen that, um, you know, I've definitely been there and witnessed that in New York City at the height of the that initial outbreak. And, um, you know, unfortunately, we see the same thing happening now with many hospitals in the Midwest and the West right now reaching capacity, um, having to transfer patients in order to um, get them into ICU level care. And essentially, we see it happening all over again in Europe, right after sort of gradually getting back to quote unquote normal and they're again uh, reaching capacity in many of the healthcare systems overseas. And so unfortunately we will continue to stay at that as Reed so um, eloquently stated, we will you know, be like that for six months, I don't know, 12 months, <laughs> right? As long as we let that thing, this thing just sort of run wild, we'll just have to live with that. And with that, we're gonna see countless deaths, as you said, not only from COVID, but also from individuals suffering from other emergencies and other conditions that they could not get addressed through elective surgery and procedures and so on. So uh, I think we made the case, y'all. You think we made the case? I don't know. I think it's clear. I mean, usually we try to stay objective on this show, but I think this is such a clear, quote unquote, argument. We have to reject the Great Barrington Declaration. I mean, that's it, period. Yeah, if you're if you're out there listening and and you say, hey, there's something you guys overlooked and didn't mention at all, we would love to hear from you. I mean, we are very much open yes. to alternative opinions. Yes, seriously, this is our opinion. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. So, you know, this is what we have uh, based on our research, based on you know, sort of uh, both of these declarations and really looking at them side by side 
and also through personal experience with all three of us, you know, sort of being uh, from New York City and seeing what happened in the spring, um, I think we definitely have a basis to make these decisions, um, you know, on. But we would love to hear from you. And, you know, one thing that I do want to get out there, because one thing that's really, you know, in closing that we really need to understand is that this stuff really came up. This declaration came up at a time that is very crucial. And we're talking about a time where we are heading into the fall and winter seasons, when we know that influenza is about to kick up and people are going to be indoors. And we knew that going into this, the transmission was going to be higher. And to say just to drop everything and let this thing run wild at such a crucial time, right? That's why we decided to address this topic tonight. Yes. And so Imani, ladies and gentlemen, um, (laughs) unless you had something else, Anastasia, to close. I think that everyone that, you know, has the credentials and like actually does work in this field is trying to come up with something that they will believe will help overall. I think that I am, I'm hoping that that's why all of these um, theories and options and, you know, the declaration and everything else came out. But we have countries that are not going through a crisis like we are right now with COVID. We have success stories on, you know, with Vietnam, New Zealand, and South Korea, and Japan. All of these countries have found ways to not have this debate where it's like we have to choose between, you know, do we just let it run rampant or do we do something about it that might impact us in an, in a very harmful way in other aspects of society. So I think that, you know, the declaration tried to make a point to try to get away to go back to normal. Mm-hmm. But again, with everything that we've seen and gone through, either personally and that we've heard, right? Because I have a lot of friends that live in Europe and they are more or less like, we see the point of the lockdown. We don't like it. We really don't want it, but we see why we need to do it. And so, Trying to come up with ways in which we find the least worst option is probably the best way to go forward. But this declaration, my opinion, ain't it. Word. I'm with you on that. And uh, that's the official recommendations of lady, of, of uh, Health in Harlem, ladies and gentlemen. Practice social, social distancing. Wear your mask, right? And abide by mandates and guidance that have been put in place so that we can reduce the spread of this illness, especially as we go into... The holiday season is something that we just really need to be mindful of because each and everything that we do as individuals, right? We're talking about helping each other, right? Why do we have to reach herd immunity that way? We can decrease the, the spread of this disease right now and save thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives. And so that's what it really comes down to is that we just have to do this for each other and for ourselves in the end. That's what we're getting across on Health in Harlem tonight, ladies and gentlemen. And so with that said, and for future generations. Yes, yes, because they're going to look to us for guidance on how we deal with this, because this is going to happen again. Um, and that's a fact that we have to live with. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. And um, we want to thank you all for you know tuning in, ladies and gentlemen. We also want to thank uh, Reed and Anastasia and the rest of the Health in Harlem team, ladies and gentlemen. Each and every week we are here to bring you um, the best information so that you can live the healthiest and happiest life possible. 
And also, we want to thank our colleagues at WHCR, especially Angela Harden, our general manager, Tina Dixon, our production manager, um, as we could not have such a wonderful program uh, without them and their support. And ladies and gentlemen, once again, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas. And Imani is going to say, How take care of yourself?